The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let's talk about quickly defining racism, sexism, ethnocentrism, paternalism. I thought racism was simply a superior attitude. Superior attitude about someone of a different race. Of a different race. Okay. And questioning of it. Making negative value judgments based upon race. Uh, making negative value statements. I'm making judgment. value judgments based upon race. Okay. Any other? How do you prejudice my base on the Based on the okay, making a negative. How many prejudices? Okay, okay. Depending on the background of the persons. I don't really know how to define racism, but I've I've have heard things that that really the looking at another race with a superior attitude or um, things like that are better defined as prejudice or bigotry or um, just stereotypes and that racism somehow involves um, an ability to oppress or there's a power issue involved with kind of enforcing your stereotypes and enforcing your prejudice. I, I don't know whether that's right or not, but one way I've heard it defined. Yeah. Uh, what, is the, what is the experience of racism? Uh, uh, what, um, some of you were in the ministry to uh, the city class yesterday, and we went over that with university staff and so forth. And they, it was quite painful. Uh, let's see, who was in the class? Well, uh, uh, it was it was very interesting, wasn't it, to see yeah. uh, an Asian, a Japanese young man, a college student that was uh, in love, who seemed to be very serious with uh, a young lady, an Anglo white young lady that uh, uh, they were ready to get married. As he saw it, went home. She went home on break time and talked to her parents that she was in love with this Asian young man back on campus. They were very serious about each other and. Uh, you're not marrying him. And came back and uh, was disqualified from marriage because of he was not white. And, on, and there was a lot of stories like this from university. Most, every one of them were Christians. So, so I want to get it from the, the video is uh, sometimes racism because because not only of superior or negative or prejudice. 
but maybe because of the they really don't know how to handle I mean, like what you mentioned that the Japanese and, and the young lady finally the family against the Japanese young men mm-hmm. they broke up mm-hmm. and I think in certain part also mentioned they say they don't know how to handle if their children to be like Japanese or like uh, American <coughs> uh-huh. the kind of situation so you're saying that some in some cases it's it's not necessarily a racial problem, yeah. a race, a yeah. racist kind of attitude. Maybe they are not prepared to to handle uh, the result of it. I mean, uh, when two different races get married. Okay. Yeah. What will be the result? So. Okay. The kind of uh, unpreparedness, or we really don't know how to handle the problem that will come after. Okay. How does that uh, sexism? Uh, I mean, how how similar are they? Sex. Yeah, the only thing that's Any other thoughts? I think sexism is very much due to the male religious system and our uh, system? religious system and our also uh, the philosophy, you know, and uh, it's part of the heritage of, of heritage of many many ideologies. And also, even even if we look at the theology, it depends how they look at the scripture, how they interpret, you know, if they how they look at the patriarchal structure, you know, if they are male theologian, they tend to you know tend to play take a greater role of the man, you know. Yeah. And and in this case, even if we make more controversial, like the ordination of uh, of women could be could be could could be also related to sexism, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, that's that's coming from his background at the seminary. <laughs> we studied at the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> we were just there last week. How it's I, I didn't study feminist, but, <laughs> but really, you know, but uh, if if you let the the women to look at the issue, it could be differently, you know. If women read, uh, like like women ordination, and uh, even if you get like 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 the like the sexual harassment in the the, uh, the, the hearing, you know, if this there are women in the senators, you know. In the in the judiciary committee, it could be different, you know. Yeah, it could be different. Certainly. Yeah. Your situation is not that the senators. There were so many female senators that maybe it would have went towards Hill more than than. Uh, um, I, I think this is an uh, it's an important subject. When we get to ethnocentrism, what does that mean to you? I think uh, it's kind of implied or stated. What does ethnocentrism imply? Assertion that one ethnic group is superior to the rest. 
and the, the others are inferior. Yeah, is an inferior. Um, how damaging can that be in missions? Very. You can completely hinder your work mm -hmm. because it shuts people down if they sense that and they say forget it then I don't want anything that this person is offering or talking about. Okay. It was there a period of time in missions where this was very strong? Yeah. 19th century missions? God worked anyway, but I... In spite of the missionary? In spite of that particular attitude, I think. You worked mightily among those and you repeated it. You repeated right, it. right. And paternalism. We'll help you do our work. <laughs> 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 Somehow we're superior. Yeah. They're all linked together in many ways, and sometimes it's difficult to separate them. When you think of racism, you nearly think about a group of people that have uh, deliberately prevented another group of people from having uh, the essentials of society, of life, prestige, prosperity, uh, means of, uh, of advancement and so forth on the basis of their race. One group has determined that another group should not receive the base essentials, the essentials of life for a healthy and growing prosperous life. And it's because they are of a particular race. And so in some ways they're doing what Ryan is saying is that they're blaming the victim. We can't give you this because you're black. You're not permitted to have this employment because you're black. In society it works that way. Educationally it works that way. Sexism is the same thing. You know, she hasn't yet experienced sexism. But she's going to write to me one day when she does <laughs> and let me know what it's like. Man, you're never going to let me live that down, are you? <laughs> and the subject is the same basic thing. She cannot have certain things that are essential for life, and they say it's because you're a female. Your hours, as Bill was saying, you cannot get uh, $10 an hour like Bob gets because you're a female. You cannot have this job and they blame the victim. They blame you for being there. So basically it's an oppressive act. And it's very essential now. This is the same thing that deals with cross-cultural ministries and leadership. And they basically cannot let you be head of the church as a pastor. Imagine trying to go into an Anglo church if you were trained here as a third generation um, Asian coming out of this with all the equipment, theologically, homiletically, practical theology, and everything else, well equipped to handle it, would you be able to go into any church? There'd be major questions why you couldn't. You'd have to be very selective. You can only go into your own culture. Um, 
And so there is, in other ways, a restriction that's placed on certain people, and it's because of who you are. And I think we're trying to do certain things uh, to open that up, but I find it very, very much in uh, existing in our urban context as well, with uh, uh, churches that are being planted in the city that come from very rural, conservative backgrounds that are planting churches. And then when it comes to indigenous models, they are very, very cautious and suspicious of the people that are there. They cannot give them those particular prestigious positions in the church or the prosperity or the basic things that are going to be saying because they're not trustworthy. As a matter of fact, we often find that denominations will uh, let, um, for an example, I would say my denomination, uh, most of the pastors in the city are making with all of their, let's say all their um, um, medical services, uh, like, you know, health care and everything else, um, retirements and so forth, a lot of them are making over $40,000 quite easily. All right? Um, if you have a Hispanic in the city that's starting for the same denomination, he's making at best $15,000 and he has to find his own insurance. Hmm. Why? Because we're indigenous. We're rugged individuals. We can make it in the city. We can grow their churches in the city. So here they make the comparison between one that graduates from the seminary that is calm and he has his family lifestyle and must fit into their culture. Not the, necessarily the theology, although the theology in some ways is their culture. And you get the indigenous leaders that are making half or less than half of their. So you've got this going on. You see, and they and don't complain about it because they would say is that uh, you don't need it as much as we do in some ways. You can live on base, and we can. With the money they make, we can plant so many more churches. We can do so much more in leadership. Not only that, but it's going to be impossible to give some of them high salaries and then bring other leadership. How are you going to pay for it? See, so in some ways, we're immediately eliminated from that. Prosperity, if you will. So here, that's what it basically is. It's an oppressed back and you blame the victim. It's because you're a female and you can't have a job. It's because you're Hispanic. You're Asian. That's why you can't have a job. And so that's a basic. And I, my concern is that it flows right into our mission endeavors and our ministries. And I'm concerned that we wrestle with this on a personal level. This is a subject that we're dealing with. Uh, um, the acceptance of others. Uh, the subject of... Um, Removing the extra baggage in your life, you're learning a little bit about that. You know, I often notice it quickly when you're carrying excessive baggage. I notice it in class. I notice this was either some of the warnings, and I would say, if you were going to work with me, then I would begin to uh, help you with that. And the problem with it, it takes so long. Um, as I share in class with them, it's a process of detox. You're nearly kind of <laughs> removing from one area and going into another, and you're fighting. You're scratching away because you don't want to change. You know, and so all of these things. And then if you begin to say that there's a possibility that in every one of us here in this room, there may be strong strands of racism and paternalism. And what happens is we discover it when someone is attached to Bob that is not necessarily of anything in his background. And for the first time, he has to struggle with leadership and share the power 
with another person that doesn't have any kind. I mean, he may not even be a high school graduate. Now, in our Hollywood style, we're saying, that's not me. I mean, I can just deal with that. But then when it all of a sudden begins to infringe on you, you begin to wrestle with it. You find yourself then being the superior, although you would never want that to be known. And you find yourself in a paternalistic mode. You become very, very hot. If, if, hold on. Um, oh, did we talk about Bob? I can say, you know, there, there, there are issues of racism I need to deal with. But I'm saying, like, you take the situation, someone who's never had a high school diploma, and they want to share leadership. Um, what capacity? We didn't discuss that, so perhaps my comment is irrelevant. But like, if it was a white church, and I was dealing with a Caucasian, and the issue was qualifications for leadership, and I'm looking at maturity and gifts, and uh, maybe a demonstration, a precedent on leadership, uh, no one would probably say Bob's racist, or Bob's paternal, uh, being paternal. Um, in, in a cross-racial situation, everything you do that is not like racism, perhaps everything is the, is the wrong word, but it's, it's racism. It's racism. You're racist, Bob. And it's like, uh, <laughs> what, what, there's an Arab proverb that I really like. If someone called you a camel, how are you supposed to argue? It's like, if someone says you, you are something, you're obviously not, but they're convinced that you are, is it worth arguing? And I think racism is an issue that that is prominent. Uh, it's, it's vicious. It's, I mean, it's, it's there. It's a prominent part of a lot of white people, perhaps most, perhaps all. But when people, when racism raises its ugly head as an accusation, I, I I'm not always convinced that it's what we're Well, you heard the film yesterday. Most people who may never, until they begin to wrestle with it, there is such a resistance towards it that they will never, never, never. My problem, my problem, and my, it was a hypothetical thing, but you, and I assure you, you will never learn that you're paternalistic until you have this young black man that's next to you that has no quality, does things nearly the opposite of you, you will all of a sudden find yourself saying, no, Jim, uh, we've got to go, and you'll find this tension of power distri distribution. For the first time, that's usually when it happens. It happens to all of us. All of a sudden, because of our training and everything, and because of other ethnic, ethnocentrism, <coughs> that we thought we'd never, I mean, we're still purists. That's why we come into ministry, that none of these things are possible. Now, we may speak of them, but I don't think that we really realize Truly that we can confess that until it begins to happen because there is such deep sorrow There is such pain in your heart that there is change in you see we're just verbalizing these issues But I know what happens to you when you become converted When that and that's just like the whole repentance I mean there is serious sobbing about issues that are, that you thought never could be in your mind, you say, there's a possibility that all of us, or there's some of us, or they could have all of them. That's the talk. When it hits you, you will find that there is a tremendous change. Or, I've seen the sobbing of men that have been abusive in their relationship to their wives, and never thought, leadership, that they were sexist, until some 
thinking the word of God and the Spirit began to bring conviction. The subject was brought up. If it's never brought up, I think we're very happy. And we can talk about it forever until you're faced with it very seriously. And there is tremendous repentance. So the subject is not something that we, it's hard to talk about, but it's something that I would say, yes, you've got to deal with it. I think you're going to imposing emissions. And you've got to deal with it. And I think the only thing is, if you go back into your church, there's no need to deal with it. For an example, we were saying, if your church is homogeneous, and you're going to be in a comfort zone, there will never be any need to deal with it. I mean, if you don't see, if you don't deal with other ethnic groups, there's no need for it. If you're basically never having to deal with, let's say, the sharing of leadership with women, you're never going to have to deal with a lot of subjects. I can remember working in a company where I became a Christian. They had a policy that I didn't realize how horrible it was until afterwards. But the policy was this, don't hire Jews, don't hire blacks. Or Hispanics. And the reason I was the reason I was put in, I was put in like on the bottom of the thing and I started growing up. And then I was in management. I didn't know how they did this. I couldn't have it written down. You know how they do it? They would first of all, of course, black you know immediately. And they would they would make some changes in there so that you wouldn't be because they were afraid of work ethics, that you wouldn't work the kind of hours. They didn't trust you, so forth. The Jews take off all those holidays, and they only work from nine to five. If they don't work, if they work, uh, if you ask them to work these extra hours, that you have to work. They would never work. Them. So they would say to you, because you look, you could be Jewish, and they would say to you, "What holidays do you uh, do you take during the year?" So we would know, and we would say Hanukkah. <laughs> and immediately they would they would say, "Well, thank you," and they would eliminate her from working because she was a Jew horrible systems that exist in our institutions. And um, this is horrible, right? Things that you just... So I, I know that in some ways the most horrible. I never thought that Christians would have any of this. I was that foolish and naive to think this would happen <laughs> until I came into Christian institutions to study the Bible. And I found racism existing in those institutions. I'm so that that um, we know this the society system is horrible is unequal, but um, one problem is that if how about those uh, who are in the ministry using their own theology convictions, theology conviction to justify the sexist or racist, you know, then they also honor to the Bible. They feel that that's the deep interpretation, you know. And they become very dogmatic, not even willing to open open up themselves to evaluate, thinking that their interpretation is the interpretation, is the infallible interpretation. But I think every seminary and every minister should constantly, you know, evaluate their hermeneutics, their uh, interpretation, their theology, you know, because theology is 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 is, is not something. Infallible, but the word of God is infallible. You know, I think it's very important. You know, we we are in a reform seminary. That is precisely you know reform. We have to constantly reform ourselves. You know, but I see you know what 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 I feel that reform you know tends to that this is something reform tradition tend to be more dominant, more more authoritative than the word of God. But sometimes it's my feeling. Maybe it's also my prejudice. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah. And rude, aren't all of these isms that we're talking about 
egocentrism mm -hmm. in the sense that I'm saying that I'm better and anybody that's different is not as good as I am. Yeah. Whether they be female, yeah. whether they be not Caucasian, whether they be from a different ethnic group, or whether they do things differently mm -hmm. than I do. Which is, <laughs> which is the root of my sin nature. <laughs> sure, I mean, you can, you can come back, and that's the problem, too, is that we, we can come back and just say, um, sin, and you gotta wait. <laughs> you gotta wait. Yeah. All in nature. But I want to I say you've been. Well, I, 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 yeah, I know. Yeah, but that happens. You see, that's another system that's that comes true. out and says, sin. And I want to say, no, no, you're an adulterer. I saw you. <laughs> Now we're talking different. You can't just say, oh, I've been saying, uh, it's been, you know, God forgive me. But now I'm saying, I saw you. I, you're an adulterer. Now it's a different ballgame. And the same thing comes back. The workers that I'm working with right now, the guys that are training, all of them have had this kind of intercultural, and, and they thought that they were removed from it until they got into leadership with others. And they said, I thought I didn't have those problems. As a matter of fact, I loved black people. I mean, I wanted to be like them in some ways until the sharing of power took place. And they began to realize I'm paternalistic. I feel that in some ways they are inferior to me. I've learned that, that they don't have the uh, abilities that I have. You know, it began to come out. The only thing you do is I've never imposed that. I've just said you nearly have to go through the process of understanding and teaching and sharing and loving people pastorally. And all of a sudden, those things begin to happen. And it's something that will hinder ministry desperately. It doesn't, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things that if you don't deal with it, it's disastrous to ministry. But I think we have to deal with it. Um, but uh, if you are a minister, you are in a pastoral situation, you are aware of that, you want to deal with it. But your congregation may not like to deal with it. If you like to do it, the first thing you become vulnerable now. Yes. You you be you mismatch, you know, you be you can't mid match your congregation. I think it tends to become very political sometimes, you know. You well, have to, you have to yeah, I, I bring this out and may may you you know, uh, take it like this that there is the, there is resistance to this subject. Um, I mean the first week two weeks I was here, it, it happened. And of all, of all the situation happened with the highest official, the second, the two highest officials of the seminary, uh, thinking that I might be thinking that they're racist. <laughs> and immediately they are, am I a racist? Are you calling me a racist? And, and uh, I never used the words. There's that defensive tension. And you know, you see it there. And, um, and so there's a lot historically that's, that's happened, and uh, on the, being on the other side of it, I understand it. Also, I understand the part of it that I could do that as well. Hispanics and blacks are not removed from racism. Uh, in the island of Puerto Rico, they will do the same thing as Mexicans do with the Indians, we do with the, uh, the Afro-Caribbeans that are black. The same thing. And so it's a horrible thing that occurs. I, I don't know how to explain, I think, uh, um, sexism is as horrible as well, and um, especially in close relationships that you um, that you can continue to perpetuate it. I just my point in the whole matter is, if you recall, that we were trying to deal with the subject of 
of our involvement. And, and if you don't realize some of these things, you don't work them through, I think it becomes a, a danger to your ministry and to your life as a person. Uh, you're never really whole. You're never a whole person. Some ways you've got to start working on those issues. And you never even think that they're there because so part of society, it's just like, it's a given. It's nearly acceptable. You know, it's just part of everything that goes on every day. Nobody needs to talk about it. That's not a bad situation. I mean, drinking and being drunk is a bad situation, but this is not a bad situation. And they don't realize, you see. So I bring that out to you because I would want to really confront you on it and let you work it through and let the Spirit of the Lord minister to you. Blaming the victim, any thoughts on that? Because he works from somewhat the similar angle. I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I think he does the same thing. He goes to the juggler. What is your thoughts on Brian's book, Blaming the Victim? Reactive. Huh? He is reactive yes, to, the, okay. to the system. Certainly he is, yes, he's reactive, okay. What was the weakness, the strength, the thing you'd like to throw a book at him or, you know? This book has been, because of the, what you're feeling, it's been uh, reprinted and reprinted, uh, you know, and uh, what, what's your thoughts on Ryan's position? That was the best part of the book. Yeah. In almost every chapter, that was very, very, that was a strong point. Um, one that really stood out in me was the education one, yeah. as far as yeah. the children go. Um, yeah, we had a day camp this summer, in, in the, and I, the, the motto that the leader of the camp established was, you are great kids. And because that was established from the very beginning, they were great kids. Everything they did was excellent all summer long. Um, and it's because the camp leaders had high expectations that much was accomplished. Mm -hmm. Whereas they could have gotten a lot less if they didn't have such high standards. Okay. I think he seems to focus more on the black community and he associates black with the poor, poor culture. Mm -hmm. Black are born to be poor, yes, okay. uh, inferior, other mm -hmm. culture. He emphasized a lot on that. They are deprived of privileges which the white have. Mm -hmm. uh, so he emphasized a lot. I think that's. Well, uh, well, I think he. It's quite an interesting book that really he raised up a lot of uh, social uh, issues and, and uh, operation. In, in, what a cogna, huh? mm -hmm. kind of operation okay. being yeah. put on the black community uh, and deprive privileges they should have on the equal ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 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 I totally agree with his uh, methodology. <laughs> <laughs> we knew you would. <laughs> because uh, you know, he, he presents two kinds of methodology to interpret black society. One is except exceptionalistic methodology, mm -hmm. uh, uh, based on ideology, just, just based on imagination, uh, based on speculation, not, not fact, not, not, not evidence. But uh, I, uh, I read this book with the faithfulness to his methodology. He presents uh, ideological situation and then 
uh, scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, racism is a kind of, is a kind of phantom of ide ideological imagination. It's a kind of a ghost because it is not reality. I think he tried to, he tried to attack the mythology of, of, of a racist society. I think it is very important viewpoint. You know, we, especially conservative theologians or conservative theological methodology has a kind of, uh, what, uh, prejudice to scientific methodology, but uh, he, especially his scientific methodology is presupposed by human equality and anti-capitalism. I think, I think if we have good presupposition, if we have good mind, uh, we 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 have to depend depend on uh, scientific methodology. I I, I agree with his okay. methodology. Okay. How about uh, um, this this was one very particular point, but I just kind of started thinking about this is um, the way we have so many special interest groups in our society today. You know, like the gays say, like, well, we we've got to have this and the. Um, I don't know, that's the first group that comes to my head. There's m many more, but, yeah. yeah. And I wonder if this isn't the same kind of principle, but turned in a different direction. So I kind of saying, okay, this is, this is almost like people saying, okay, this is true, now how can I turn it to my advantage then? Because in a sense, they're saying the same thing of like, we can't change, therefore you have to accommodate us. Which doesn't mean, I mean, the opposite isn't necessarily right either of saying that you've got to be like the, ma the majority group, which in some sense they're also attacking, but I really, I really wonder about that, if that isn't part of, part of the philosophy that's, that even is allowing or encouraging that kind of mm -hmm. um, domination by special interest groups. Well, especially in... in uh, in church leadership, uh, the, the educational background or economic background is not always coherent, the ability to lead the church. I think, I, think, uh, I, I mean, we, we have a kind of uh, prejudice of, of ideology, you know, educated people is, is better than uneducated people, you know, wealthy people is better than unwealthy, you know, poor people, mm -hmm. be, be, ha, you know, uh, uh, middle class people have the, the good moral system than the low class people. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a fact, it's not a reality, it's just imagination. You know, uh, we, we have to, we have to, I think we have to be confronted with the reality, with the scientific methodology, I think. It is the remarkable, remarkable viewpoint in, in his book. I, I, I would say at least to uh, keep in, in mind uh, that he doesn't deal with determinism, and that could be a danger in his book, um, where he, there is an expectation uh, for uh, particular groups to um, kind of as uh, Jesse Jackson would say is to get up, get going idea. Uh, so he doesn't ex he doesn't include determinism that there's uh, a need for uh, the particular groups to do something about their situation. 
Um, but I think the, the other pieces are there that if you read, as I mentioned, Welfare Mother, you might do exactly what he is saying you would do, is you would blame Common, or you would blame them for their situation totally, and say why, and not look further into the setting and find out what's, they are responsible. That's determinism. They've got to do something. At the same time, we would blame the victim. Um, and so, there's a sense of that when you go out and you start ministering in communities where they are very poor or there is really people unsheltered by, by the, the things that uh, um, would protect them from, from different societal issues, um, that you begin to say, why are they just terrible? They're terrible people. So there is something in that that we've got to always wrestle with. And um, I'm always finding that there is, uh, uh, when something occurs, we immediately go to the victim. Of the situation, and it's uh, Paulo Fieri would say the really who who strikes the first uh, blow? You got a kid in school, and um, he comes to class late, or he's not doing well in achieving, so he immediately becomes one that is uh, singled out by the teacher, and so she really ignores him at times when he comes in uh, late. She he tries to explain certain things to her. And uh, uh, she ignores that and um, uh, kind of puts him down by just not uh, going to him and trying to work through some of his needs. Uh, he can't work these math problems out. And he's expected to do his homework. I mean, he's in high school. So it keeps on going. And in some ways, she is taunting him and belittling him and making him feel less human. He eventually comes in one day 15 minutes late, and she tells him, get out of my classroom. This actual situation at Clemente High School. He picks up the chair and throws it at her. Now, there's been three months of this kind of thing going on. The first blow, Paulo Fieri says, is that he, she, he began, she began to already attack him verbally. There were no physical marks. He made the first move, of course. That's the only way he knows how to respond to her, is physically he threw something. He was expelled, kicked out of school, the rest of it. He becomes the victim. They blame him for the whole problem, etc., etc. Et he gets destroyed. He doesn't know how to get out of it, how to explain it. You see? And there are other issues. So what comes out of it is that this always occurs. In our system, we blame the victim. We can't deal with it. My wife goes to the high schools primarily because she knows there are so many victims there that they're going to be blamed for everything. And so she is there as to support them to say, let me be a mediator at least to talk the process through. Don't kick him out. Because he'll be on the corner of uh, Fifth and Lehigh Dealings. And so you've got that situation. But they are unprotected. Unprotected. There's no one. I mean, who's the right one? The teacher? The administrator? Of course. And then when it comes to race issues, the white person might be the right one. You've got all these tensions occurring in a school that has a high system like they do. Like yeah. I think he raised, uh, Ray raised up an important point. Uh, yeah. He said there's an administration of injustice. But I think what he means is the authority itself, no, setting up certain standards to protect the privilege, not, okay. not the victim. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also he mentioned that uh, the 
the city authority blamed the high crime rate among the blacks, yet they are not able to deal with the white crime, white collar uh, crime. Yeah. They, are, they are doing uh, uh, mm-hmm. in the office. They, they are cheating money uh, or corruptions among the white collars. Mm-hmm. Yet they blame the, the black <laughs> on the streets. They catch the black, put them in the zen. I Reading a book on uh, people groups, uh, more uh, lifestyle groups, uh, the, the gypsies are uh, an enigma to us. They don't have pay any taxes. They don't. Be, they don't have any residency. There's nothing. I mean, uh, uh, and they're, everything they get, they they think of gypsies as stealing. You know, from society. So, in interviewing a gypsy woman, she says basically, we yes, we admit to it that we steal with our hands, but you steal with your pens. In writing and doing, she's basically saying that that whole. A white collar whole thing of exploiting systems are there, but we still we admit it. And uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, thing. There's a reality to all of this. I I think we're searching. If we had time, we have more on this cross cultural stuff, and then we have time with debriefing and dealing personally in in, in a multi ethnic setting. Of course, that's the important part where you've got such a mixture in this classroom. We don't have Afro Americans which would make a difference, but we don't have them in school necessarily. <laughs> so, so that would make another entity. If you come to our class in the evening on Tuesday night, you will find <laughs> a lot of heavy discussion because we have such a high number of Afro Americans. So, but I, 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 yes. I, I, I said that book is a bit reactive because mm-hmm. instead of blaming the victim, he tend to blame the. He banned the system. I, I would agree with him. The example is yes, Sean is very true. But looking from a Christian perspective, yes. you know, the responsibility also falls upon the victim, you know. Like uh, at one time in, 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 in the theology, they said they, they saw the, the term like sin against. But they failed to look at the thing that the sin against are also at the same time sinners. Sinning. Yeah, right. they are also right. sinning, you know. Right. I think it's a, a very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, as a matter of fact, we, it's, we, we're very quiet when we say that they're sinned against. But there is an outroar of amens when, they are, when we say that they're sinners, because that's our evangelical trend. That's the one that we all know. But the, 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 the other side of the radical, only, only saying the sin against, but they are very quiet see, about the sinning, you know? Yeah, it's very hard for us it's, to capture this. idea. idea is that if we remove the oppression and give them more money so they make it up the ladder, all those things will disappear. Oh, sure. And that's very realistic. He basically says their moral situation will improve if we give them more welfare money and they're and they're not as degraded and stuff like that. And his his answer seems to be bigger government and more spending for almost every one of these problems. Which, yeah, we would disagree. We would disagree. <laughs> agenda. We would disagree with so much of Ryan in those areas. I think what what the book brings out to us is a sensitivity and caution. It's what Viv Gray calls the sin against in, 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 in Christian terms now. He would name his book probably instead of blaming the victim, he would say those sinned against or something like that. Uh, but we, we learn from this book at least and uh, that there is something to be censored. It's, uh, it happens, by the way, you know, if you're, if you're working in North Philadelphia, Bill, and you've got a clinic in the community, uh, uh, you know, uh, you have to go there sometime and sit there for the hours and hours and hours. Hours. And you have to begin realizing 
uh, how those uh, Hispanic women feel when they bring their child to that place, especially if there's no one sensitive to their culture, and uh, how, how fearful they are of anything being wrong, especially by child abuse or anything, because they would have no protection whatsoever. And they feel that, so they don't know whether, what to bring a child for, even if they have no, nothing to do with the responsibility of, of that. Or the, the child that needs to paint, that paint, that gets hurt. Who do you blame? You blame the mother, especially if they come from the low socioeconomic. You blame the mother for being uh, irresponsible. You don't blame the landlord. You don't blame the system for not dealing with that housing problem. Now, these are things that I just think as missionaries, we've got to be sensitive to. I think it's constant uh, things that we deal with in the city, and it's a lot of attitudes and internal stuff. And we've got to work some of this through. And uh, it's good to be able to say, here's where I pick the bones, this is the stuff I can handle, I think this is where I've got to wrestle with, and these are the things. The system is always going to be very, very humanistic, wrong. Uh, it doesn't do transformation. It probably lends to the problems. And that's where, and he doesn't deal with determinism, which we would say, I've got to work with determinism. I've got to get them all off. So, a lot of things. But let me just, because of time, we dealt with accept yourself, remove that which is extra baggage, listen. You know, that's the hardest thing for us is listening and learning. Acceptance of others, which is where we've been with some of our issues inside about racism and sexism. Uh, it's hard to do this. I admit that all of us in some ways are entangled with these issues. Um, fifth thing is mutual respect. Remember the illustration. Um, I think this is very important. This matter of mutual respect. I, I, the illustration you've heard before, but let me repeat it at least for the tape or is that when navigators came to our community in Chicago, uh, they were very well trained in memorizing the scriptures. They were very well trained in um, a lot of ways of using the scriptures that were very profitable. But they were also trained in some ways of being disciple makers. That immediately has connotations that could lead them astray. They were disciple makers and you're a disciple lead. You immediately have this kind of category. And so when all of them met like in a room like this, as many as you are here, uh, they were there, they were all coming from a different background. It was middle class, it was white suburbia, and they were very sincere about moving into the city, coming and serving. When they came, they asked, hey, we want to serve the Lord. We really want to help the people in this community grow, out on that navigator's time. Now, on the other side of the table, there were Hispanics, primarily Hispanic second generation, that came and they they responded to them with the gratitude that they had come but they asked him tell me something what can we do for you and they didn't have an answer they asked it again what can we do for you how can we help you and he said no 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 we've come here to really help you learn the bible and become better stewards the basic point was that they didn't understand what value they had to them so we stopped the conversation and said, we really have to find what value we have to each other. Before we do anything, find out what value do we have to each other. Otherwise, this model, instead of God being the disciple maker, and we're disciples, which is the biblical model, um, the other one leads you to paternalism. Yeah. And you're a victim yourself. You become a victim not wanting to be because you've been trained that way. And so the other individual, you can't hear them. You don't learn from them. There's nothing that they ought to offer you. 
except that you might be able to say, you know, I really appreciated that Johnny was here to speak with me, and that he was kind enough to just spend the whole day with me. Uh, you don't find the, the gifts and the abilities and all that they have to offer you. You're, you're very poor at learning from others. And so this matter of mutual respect is a very, very important piece. Um, some, of the, some of the nomenclature, some of the kind of categories we have should be avoided, just like disciple makers and your disciple lead. Things like that. It leads you. You become a victim. That's why I think in many ways seminaries also uh, perpetuate this, that you become, when you go into ministry, that kind of a victim because you're vulnerable to these kinds of issues. And you come as a superior person. You come as the one that has the answers. And in some ways, that has to be decontextualized. And so you might be hurt during the process. You might go through tremendous pain. The sixth thing is the one that is probably the most difficult because it's a word, but it's also a real life, and that's vulnerability in ministry. And this is a very important aspect in cross-cultural ministry, is the point of vulnerability that we have to find ourselves. Because we're always avoiding it, of course, we don't want, who wants to be, you know, vulnerable? Does anyone really want to be vulnerable? It's painful to be that. And we've learned never to be that. It nearly has to be things that happen to us that we never expected to be vulnerable. You never thought when you moved into that house that your neighbor was really one that was going to, any time you turned your back, leave the house, your stereo is going to be rocked. It's interesting, our neighbors down, Marsha Hopkins' daughter, so the young couple just got married, wrote Tenth Press. And they've been involved here four times in the last few months. Now, it's crazy. You don't replace the things because they know you're going to replace them. So your stereo system and everything is robbed. Anything else that you have is going to be robbed. Um, boy, that's painful. Someone is violent. Coming in your home. Just the idea of someone coming in. And you go through that experience. What do I tell them? You know, do I tell them, stick here? Now, the chances are... They said 10 years we're going to be living here. They've only been here a few months. What do you think is going to happen? How are they going to deal with that issue? Vulnerability is painful. Do you blame them for moving out? No, I wouldn't blame them for moving out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them less missionary or less in love with God or anything. But I just want to share with you how painful that is. And I don't know how to resolve that. Yeah. I don't know how, what they, how they will process all of this. What does it mean to the kingdom of God? Yeah. <laughs> Then, uh, my neighbor, he, his car's radio was stolen. Somebody broke the glass and then stolen her car's radio. Uh, mm -hmm. right. So after that, he, he said, I don't want to put any new cassette player into my car. And then he put a, a note outside, my car has no radio. <laughs> <laughs> right outside, so they yeah, can't see yeah, So people can see. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. <laughs> my car has no radio. <laughs> And after that, I find that yeah, his reaction, inter reaction to the black is uh, really uh, strong. Seems that he's blaming the probably the black children downstream mm -hmm. did that. So the gap is is increasing. He, she, and, and the black children. So, yes. Um, I some people know the story, but I lived in North Philly for one summer only, a couple of years ago, and. 
I think prior to that experience, I was a little bit hard in my thinking on people who, either people who grew up there and moved out when they, as soon as they got a chance, Christians, or people who moved in and couldn't hack it, Christians who moved in and couldn't hack it. After I lived there, I have become much more compassionate because the kind of the big deal thing of the summer was my house was raided for drugs by the police. There weren't any in it, but, um, but that really wiped me out emotionally. Um, and I think after that, I started, I, I, at first I couldn't wait, that was kind of the icing on the cake. I mean, I had rats in my house, I had fleas in my house, I had roaches, I had, you know, a whole, a whole business. I, I lived like many people in North Philadelphia. And I think after that, I began to have a lot more compassion because, like, I couldn't wait to get out at first. And I was like, God, I've got three more weeks here, please. <laughs> I don't want to just survive. No, I thought, I said, I don't want to just survive. To like, And the Lord did help me in that way, but um, it gave me a lot more compassion for people who want to get out. I don't, and I thought, and I've told God, I said, God, I'll go back there if you want me to, but I don't want to. Like, we'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think it really takes God's grace. If, and if you've grown up there, I understand now people who want to get out as soon as they can. It's sure. hard. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think that that's always a, a, an issue, especially that they know what it's like. They, and they had no choice as kids growing that's up. That's right. And now, now they have they a choice do. to make a decision to leave. Big question is your mission tension. It always comes back to that. What supersedes all of that? And that's where you've got to come. If you've listened to the tape on Humble Communication School, you see all of them came back to the same thing they're talking, and they were born there. It's a mission. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I do too. I don't. I you know I don't think anybody can manipulate that. It's got to be of the Lord, and uh, you've got to teach. But you know, I think it's yeah. costly. Um, so I, how can I say it? You know, it's uh, it is difficult, and yet at the same time, God has called us to this kind of ministry. Mm -hmm. And if God's sovereign, if God's grace is sufficient in the suburbs, His grace is sufficient in the city, and it's also in manifested apartments. I think the other part of it is, the other part of it is that you know she began realizing her neighbors. Now her neighbors get, like my neighbors in Chicago, the 300 a month, let's say, welfare, the two kids, single parent. She can't possibly move out of that house, that apartment. She'll try to clean it, but you see, you got other apartments. So it just keeps on coming back and forth. So she's got to live there. She can't take vacations in the summer. A lot of things. But she's come to know Christ. And when you pray for the shalom of the city, so that you might have it also, you nearly go through what she's going through. And in some ways you say, how do I? And you wrestle with it. It is, it is in some ways, God has to give you grace. Otherwise, I mean, it's too much tension. But she's going through that, and how can I remove myself? What do I do about making? Her kids in that school with 3,000 students. My kids are in the same school, or I protect them. What do I do about my kids, the 3,000 kids? They belong, they belong as far as creation to God. They're image bearers of God. What do I do with those 3,000 kids? Do I have the right just to say, oh, whatever happens to them, happens to them as long as my kids are okay. Praying for the shalom of the city, that we might all have shalom. A major, major tension. You see, you see, our theology comes into praxis. These matters that we face, but we would like to not practice theology. 
in reality. We would like to just talk about it. And, That's right. And just uh, <laughs> each other and be excited about yep. theology. We don't want praxeological discussion. Right. Says, Let's go. Right. Well, I'd like you to take a break and, and come back. I want to cover these things on uh, the overheads that for each one of our students.